0: So we're going to carry on this morning in our study of Hebrews. We're not going to take chapter one this morning. I was going to, but I really felt after last week, I just wanted to kind of build on some of the things we said, Uh, and we'll just have a kind of review of of that in a minute. Um, There's just a few kind of uh, practical, I suppose, uh, bits of information for interest. The overall theme of, of this book is simply to present Jesus as deity, to present him as God and to show that he's better than all human beings and better than all angels. It's interesting, you know, you have various religious groups um, that have their views and opinions of who Jesus was. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, will try and argue that he was an angel. Well, this book clearly says that Jesus is not an angel. It says that he's better than the angels. kind of deals with that quite simply. Also, this book is to prove that Judaism and the law have come to an end. They've been fulfilled, they've been completed. That doesn't mean that they're obsolete. There's still great value in the things that uh, God gave us in the the law, the the 613 commandments as typically we refer to as the law, all summarized really in, in the Ten Commandments. But as a system of making us right with God, the law has been exposed to show that it cannot bring us to that place of righteousness. All the law can do is to show us that before a holy God we are guilty, that we're sinful, and that we need a saviour. And of course, the writer to the Galatians, as we're going to start to study, um, one of the Bible studies we're going to be looking at, uh, through the book of Galatians, it, it shows us very clearly that the law has a real purpose, but that purpose is to lead us to Christ. And when we understand the context, we see the value of it. And there's no meaningless details in the law either. You know, every command that was given, every law, every precept that God gave was there for a reason. It has value, and it still speaks. But it can't make us righteous. It can't make us holy. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Another underlying theme of this letter uh, was to confirm Jewish Christians in the faith. You know, these were believers who had come out of Judaism, under the law, under that system, and were having to let go of so many things they'd held on to. So many, in a sense, um, the basic kind of foundation of their lives was to try and keep the law to be right with God. And suddenly they're faced with the reality that they can't keep the law, no matter how hard they try, doesn't matter how, how much they obey the the, the, the Jewish legalistic system, none of those things will make them right with God. And so there was so much they were having to, to put to one side. And, and there's an interesting parallel because when we come to faith, when we come to Jesus, there is so much that we have to put to one side. So many things maybe that we had in our own mind about how we would be right, how we would try and get right with God. You know, many people when they come to faith still have this mindset of trying to do their best trying to live in a way that is pleasing to God. You know, th- that's very much like worshipping God out of a desire to, to worship God because we think we ought to. You know, there's a great example that we have in the book of Numbers. You know, the situation where the two sons of Moses go, Nahab and uh, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they go in, uh, and they, they kindle this fire to bring this offering to God. And God ends up consuming them. They die there in the, in the wilderness as they're standing before the tabernacle. Because when we offer to God, it can't be of our own effort. It can't be the best that we have. Even the best that we have is still, as Isaiah puts it, in filthy rags. You know, the worship that we bring... That which we bring has got to be from that which God has kindled, His Holy Spirit has kindled. You know, when we worship God, it has to be through His Spirit. It's not just our own uh, effort, our own desire, or or sense of duty. You know, God does all, all that in us. God does that work in us. And that which we bring before Him is pleasing if, again, it's kindled by His Spirit. And so the Jewish Christians were having to learn to let go of so many things. And to embrace this new uh, understanding, new way of looking at things. Just purely trusting in the completed work of Jesus. And so is too for us as Gentile believers. Also the the underlying theme is is to set forth this new covenant. The covenant that was established through the blood of Jesus. And the doctrines that are laid down in the New Testament. Which are now for all people, for all those that are to be saved. Um, There's clear instructions given as to how we should live, what we should do, of all that's coming and all that we need to know. If you're interested, it's the 58th book in the Bible. There's 13 chapters, 303 verses, 6,913 words. There's 17 questions asked in the book. There's 270 verses of history. So you get the idea that the writer here is pulling so much from the law and explaining those things. There's nine verses of fulfilled prophecy and 24 verses of unfulfilled prophecy. So we we see things that have been fulfilled, but it also looks forward to that which is coming. So it's not only looking back to that which has been, it's looking forward to that which shall be ahead of us. Regarding the the time of writing, there is questions and debates, but pretty much all scholars are agreed that it was before AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Uh, So it is believed to have been written from Rome, uh, that seems to be the context uh, that we have, uh, around about 68 AD, um, and seemingly along with Galatians and 2 Timothy, all written about the same time. Now, in regard to authorship, as I said last week, this is a, a letter that's not given a title at the beginning as to who wrote it. Um, and, and it's not something that I want anybody to be kind of hung up about and you can choose, in a sense, who you think. Uh, if you want a detailed study of these things, as I don't intend to go through all the various arguments for and against whatever, um, but there's a great commentary, you can get it online, there's a web link there, this will go up on the, on the, the website, our website later. Um, and you can see the commentary by Moses Stewart from 1864. Um, and it's an incredible commentary, very, very detailed, and he presents lots of good arguments um, as to uh, the various views that are, are put forward as to who wrote it. Um, if you want a more concise commentary, uh, then Albert Barnes does a great job in kind of summarizing a lot of the things that Moses Stewart says. Uh, Albert Barnes' commentary is fairly freely available, lots of um, ways of attaining that. Um, but just to give you an idea, some people suggested that Luke was the author, some Philip, some Barnabas, um, some Clement of you know, So various individuals have been ascribed as being the author. However, the general consensus uh seems to be that Paul was the author. Um now I, I'm gonna share this with you not because I'm trying to make the point. I personally do think that Paul was the author. Uh and again, I don't want to be dogmatic, we don't need to be dogmatic, it's not in the text, so it doesn't really make a big difference. But there's a couple of interesting things I'm just gonna um the, the following I'm just I've pulled out of Dake's Bible commentary, uh Charles Finish Dake, great Bible uh scholar and commentator. I don't agree with everything he says, but he says some really valuable things on many topics. Uh and these are his comments. He says this, the reasons he thinks uh, that Paul is the author, and there's some, some good arguments here, he says the thoughts and the reasonings are Paul's, it's the same as we see elsewhere with Paul's writings. And he says, any difference in his style is due to his writing to Jews as a Jew and not to Gentile churches as he does in his other epistles. He says, furthermore, uh, the translation of the book into Greek by Luke, which generally seems to be accepted that Luke was the one that translated it, um, may account for some of the changes in style. Interestingly, in Second Peter chapter 3, 15-16, Peter confirms the fact that Paul actually wrote an epistle to the Jews. Now, we don't have any other record of any epistle that Paul wrote to the Jews except potentially the book of Hebrews, Clearly this is an epistle written to Jewish believers, and the fact that Peter confirms it, and not only do confirms it, but highlights that it is scripture. That what Paul wrote to the, to the Jewish Christians was indeed scripture, therefore it should be in the canon of scripture somewhere. And as this is the only book that doesn't have an author, and it's the only book that was written to the Jews specifically, uh, it has to be this one if you just use that kind of process of deduction. Interestingly, the book of Hebrews is actually ascribed to Paul by over a 100 ancient writers in both Greek and Latin from the year 70 AD to 73 AD. That's a very short time frame and very, very close to when the book was written. So that's kind of a good indication uh, that Paul really was the author. <clears throat> It was received as Paul's. Uh, the, the Council of Laodicea in 363 AD uh, believed it to be from Paul. The Council of Carthage, uh, sorry, Carthage, uh, 397 AD, uh, and the Syrian churches in 370 all received this as if it were Paul's. They accepted it to be so. Uh, and generally by the Greeks and the Eastern churches from right from the, the early centuries. Uh, Paul is named as the author in the Alexandrian manuscripts. Now, again, that was an, more an editorial comment. It's not actually in the, uh, the Greek text itself. But in the Alexandrian manuscripts, Paul is actually listed. And some Bibles, you may even have in your Bible, uh, the letter of Paul to the Hebrews. Um, so some, uh, again, that's a, an editorial comment, but such is the, the, uh, the weight of evidence to suggest that Paul is the author. That many have gone that far and actually suggested that you know, that, or they're, they're happy to put it at the top of the, um, the page. Now, some Latin churches did question that Paul was the author, but only because Paul's name is not on the introduction, uh, as we find obviously in the rest of his epistles. And there's two reasons suggested for that. One is that Eusebius. The father of church history put it this way. He said that Paul wrote the epistle in Hebrew, leaving his name off of it, so that it would be read and received more readily by the Jews who hated him. They would not want to listen to anything he had to say. We know that Paul didn't have a particularly good um, uh, report amongst the Jewish leadership Of course, he'd been previously a member of the Sanhedrin, and then he'd come to faith in Christ. Uh, And we obviously know from Acts uh, the the furor that that was caused when Paul eventually gets back to Jerusalem and he gets arrested and so on. Um, But because of that, it's suggested that's one of the reasons that Paul leaves his name off of it, because he doesn't want to water down the message by putting his name at the front. Um, Luke, uh, again, suggested that it was translated into Greek. Um, and hence it's similar to Acts in its expression because, of course, Luke was the author uh, of the book of Acts um, and uh, various other records, the anti-Nicene fathers. Again, if you want to dig deeper, you can. I would suggest you don't waste your time, but if you want to, you're more welcome to. Um, again, the oldest manuscripts, uh, and I think this is interesting, and this is the, really the reason why I'm sharing this with you, not because I want to make the point that Paul is the author, um, but because I think this is very fascinating. Um, the oldest manuscripts... Um, suggests that this epistle to the Hebrews actually followed on from Galatians okay, with the title to the Hebrews, indicating that it was part of the Galatian letter. In other words, the suggestion is that as Paul writes Galatians, Hebrews is the second part of the same letter, which is a very interesting idea. So Galatians very much written to a kind of a Gentile audience, but again, Jews typically included in that because of the, the, the dealing with the law and so on. And then moving into Hebrews. Very interesting to, to look at it in this way. Now, if that's true, it means that the authorship stated in Galatians 1 would apply to both books. And of course, in Galatians, it clearly says that it's it's of Paul. And again, it will also explain why Paul speaks of Galatians as being a large letter. Um, now there is an, an idea as to what Paul actually meant there in Hebrews 6, uh, sorry in, in Galatians, it should be Galatians, Galatians 6.11 where Paul actually speaks about the, the, the large letter. Now some think it's the, the actual, the size of the letters he was writing. Now we, we understand that Paul had a, an eyesight problem, uh, almost certainly caused because of the situation on the road to Damascus uh, where he was blinded by this light, that's the moment he was converted and meets Jesus. Um, so something that, that 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 reference is actually to the size of the letters he was writing. In other words, because Isaac was so poor, he wrote really big letters. Um, but it seems to be more than it's indicating that he's suggesting that he was writing a big letter, a long letter. Uh, and of course, Galatians is only six chapters, so that doesn't really kind of follow. Um, however, if Hebrews is kind of the second part of that, then again, very interesting um, suggestion. And so you see the theme. And also, at the end of Galatians... Verse sixteen, uh, it speaks of the Israel of God, and it's speaking of a, of those who are of Israel but have become believers. It's a term that's been misapplied, and people try to speak about it being the church. It's nothing of the sort. Um, the church is not the new Israel. That idea never appears in Scripture. Uh, it's something that the Roman Catholic Church kind of championed, and it never got addressed with the Reformation, unfortunately. And most churches that came out of the Reformation era, uh, Reformation churches, never went back and addressed that issue. Uh, so sadly, this idea of what we talk about, replacement theology, uh, has kind of permeated the church um and it's completely unscriptural. Uh, we've talked about this before. you can't the, the promises god gave to israel are for israel. they don't get passed on to the church. um but this phrase israel of god it speaks about those as paul does in romans interestingly enough paul speaks about um the the ones that were blinded and then he speaks about those that, that believed. um so th- there's a remnant of jews that were saved And then the rest of the Jews were blinded. And those were the saved. Paul makes a really clear argument in Romans. uh, They are the Israel of God. They are the Israel who have believed the promises, have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Now, all that said, it's very interesting then that you have that comment at the end of Galatians. And then you move into the book of Hebrews Which then deals with exactly this issue, addressing the Jewish believers, the Israel of God. So, again, a very interesting suggestion. These are just suggestions. I'm not going to make, there's not doctrine. I'm not trying to force you to believe this. You believe what you want in regard to this, but I'm just sharing with you because I think it's interesting. Again, there's nothing in the epistle that is contrary to Paul's authorship. Uh, In fact, there's much internal evidence uh, that Paul was the author. Both books, Galatians and Hebrews, argue at length on the abolishment of the Old Covenant, uh, and both anticipate the visit of the writer. They both speak about the writer, and Paul obviously in Galatians, and then the writer to the Hebrews coming and visiting the church, um, particularly at Jerusalem. Uh, Paul was the only writer of the New Testament who requested prayer for himself, and we see that uh, in various places. But Hebrews 13, 18, we see a reference to the author of Hebrews making that request, and so on. <clears throat> and then... There's other exhortations in Hebrews that are similar to those in other epistles of Paul. Now, again, I'm not going to go through these, but there's a lot of scriptures, and if you want to compare these, you can look at the references in Hebrews and compare them with other scriptures, and you see the similarities. It really is quite good, um, or it's a good argument to to suggest that Paul really was uh, indeed the author. Uh, Again, both books, Galatians and Hebrews, were written from Italy. Uh, we know that. Um, Paul was the only New Testament writer who wrote from prison and expected release. Um, so again, more you kind know, of internal evidence that we see. Uh, no other writer of epistles mentions Timothy, but of course Paul does a number of times, uh, refers to him 20 times in the epistles that are recognized as being from Paul. And then we have that reference at the end of Hebrews as well. And when Paul mentions Timothy, he always refers to him as brother. Now, of course, other believers may have done the same. That's not proof on its own, but it's another interesting suggestion as to the validity of uh, understanding Paul to be the author. So, the conclusion of the epistle is also like Paul concludes his other epistles. Um, So, I just kind of share these ideas, these thoughts uh, with you. Now, background. Uh, We said last week, uh, the church in Jerusalem had already lost Stephen, James the Apostle uh, had been martyred, uh, and various others had been kind of killed, martyred for their faith. And so the church now in Galatia is also facing persecution. So there's the temptation, and again it's interesting, this tie-up between Galatians and Hebrews. Um, in Galatians there was that temptation to turn back to Judaism, to a legalistic system. And Paul really deals with that again we 'll be starting this Thursday to look at those things in Galatians, um, but we see the same idea being presented in Hebrews as well uh, and of course, Paul is arguing uh, in Galatians and the writer to the Hebrews is arguing that you cannot turn back there 's no value in the law uh, and, and, and pleading in a sense um, that we don 't get back under that legalistic system now, again, for us, you know we, have, we need to have that, that reminder not to get back under the things of the world. You know, just as the Jews had come out of that legalistic system, so we've come out of a world, we've come out of a, a set of traditions in a sense, things that we've held on to. And we mustn't get so attached to those traditions that it stops us growing in grace. Again, Jews saw Christianity as a rejection of the law, Uh, and this is one of the things that's addressed both in Galatians and in Hebrews. And again, the temptation, therefore, is to revert for these Jews, specifically, back to Judaism to avoid persecution. And the writer really tries to deal with this. Now, the objectives to combat this possible apostasy, to encourage them to press on to spiritual maturity, and this is one of the things we'll be looking at in just a moment this morning, Uh, but also to comfort them in their persecutions. If you remember last week, we just looked at the basic structure. Um, the first seven chapters, we just see Jesus presented as being the best, the most wonderful, the most complete in every possible way. That Jesus was a new and better deliverer. Jesus was better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He was a better leader than Joshua, a better priest than Aaron. And he was after the, the same order as Melchizedek. We talked about this briefly last week, and we'll look at more when we go through each chapter. In turn. And of course, Calvary itself, you know, Mount Moriah, a, a much better mountain in a sense than Jabalel Laws or Mount Sinai where the law was given. Because the new covenant that was established on Mount Moriah on Calvary is complete. It is not based upon anything we can do. You know, the, the weakness of the law is shown quite clearly when you see the law given in Exodus and then the very next book is Leviticus. And Leviticus deals with sacrifice. Leviticus deals with all the things you need to do when you break the law. It shows very clearly that that God knew that the Jews could not obtain righteousness through the law. But Calvary, what a different story. That we can all obtain righteousness through the blood of Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did there. And then the final chapters from 10 um, through to 13, uh, you see the kind of practical applications, uh, that great chapter 11, we'll enjoy that when we get there, Lord willing, uh, where we look at the hall of faith, these great characters that are presented to us, of people whose faith we should follow, we're told. You know, it's great to have people you can look up to, uh, people scripturally particularly, um, that you can look at, that can be an example, that can be somebody that, that encourages you in your own walk with the Lord. And then finally there's that exhortation to endure uh, that closes the book out. Now last week we mentioned that there's these five warnings as we go through the book. Just a very brief recap of those. The first warning is about drifting. We talked about these in detail last week. If you didn't hear, go review the the teaching from last week. The second warning is about disobedience. Again, some of those things with disobedience is simply a lack of trust that can lead to disobedience. The example that's given, of course, is the children of Israel, where they failed to go into the promised land. They, they, just, they were frightened, they were fearful, and it led to disobedience. It led to 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, and the entire generation dying out. I'm well, you start to see the consequences of these things are quite serious. The danger of failing to mature, the warning about willful sin, and then finally the really horrible position of indifference, not being bothered. You know, I hope we never ever get to the stage that we accept and tolerate sin. That we get used to it so much that it doesn't hurt us. You know, I hope that every time you hear somebody blaspheme in public or in the workplace or at school, it hurts. But the danger is we get so used to it because we hear it so often that we kind of almost accept it. We can almost become indifferent to it. You know, and it's the same with with things that we maybe tolerate, things that we would see on TV or listen to or places we would go or things that we allow in and around our lives. You know, are there certain things that we just will not tolerate because we recognize it's sin? We recognize that it's an affront to a holy God. I hope in our lives that's the way that we are, that we don't want those things in our lives. But there's a danger. And as we said last week, none of what we went over was in any way meant to condemn us, but simply to say, look, you know, if we've got into this kind of position, if we've allowed ourselves to become complacent in our walk with the Lord, now is the time to turn it around. And this is exactly why we have this, this letter to the Hebrews to encourage us to get back on track. You know, we're going to go through all of this wonderful study and Lord willing, if we have time, we're going to get to that great bit where we're told that we should be looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You know, that, that's really kind of one of the high points of the book. As we go through all of these things, you know, it's all about getting our eyes off. For the Jews, the law, the legalistic system, our own ways of doing things. But for us as Gentile believers, it's going to rise off everything in this world, everything that would slow us down in our walk and our run with the Lord. We're told that that sin so easily ensnares us. So guess what? It's no surprise that we struggle with things. Sin does easily ensnare us. And so anybody that says, Oh, I don't struggle with that, I'm not having a problem with sin. Well, John tells us, you, you, you're deceiving yourself. No, we will we struggle with these things. And you, know, and, and you may be anywhere on that list. You, you may be kind of all of it at the moment. But it doesn't mean that that's it, that we have to kind of back up and say, well, I said I'm, I'm finished, the Lord can never use me. Now the, the point is that, that the writer here is saying, look, you know, wherever we are on this list, we would get off, get back on track. The idea of drifting right at the start is the idea of a, a ship sailing and being just slightly off course. Initially it doesn't matter that much, but it does after you've gone a few miles. And at the end of your journey, if you, are, if you don't correct the course, it makes a big, big difference. You know, this is why we need to encourage each other. This is why we need to edify each other. This is why we need to be accountable to each other. One of the most wonderful things within the Christian church is accountability. Many of you remember Tony that came and spoke to us uh, a short while ago. He's gone back to America now. But I used to love when I, when I met up with Tony for lunch sometimes in London. One of the things he'd often say, often one of the first things he says, how's your walk with the Lord? Now, some people may be offended by that question, but, but it's a lovely thing to have somebody that cares that much about you, that they want to just check that you're, you're on track. And a number of times he said to me, are you keeping yourself pure? know, what a lovely thing to have somebody that loves you, that cares about you that much, that's prepared to ask you that question. Now, what, what if I were to ask you that question this morning, are you keeping yourself pure before the Lord? Well, again, as we go through this, this is a, an exhortation to end up looking to Jesus. A quote I read last week was actually from Chuck Nisler, but again, great loss awaits those who fail to persevere. Loss of reward and honor in Christ's coming millennial kingdom. Sometimes it's very hard for us to get our head round the eternal things, the things that are outside of, of our realm of understanding now. You know, when we speak about the millennial kingdom, we have some sort of prophetic understanding of what's going to happen. But we are going to have roles and responsibilities. We're going to have positions of authority. We're actually told that the saints will judge angels. That's a, that's a phenomenal responsibility to be given. You know, Jesus speaks about those that are given authority over cities and so on. And I don't think they're just kind of abstract ideas. I think Jesus is hinting at some of the things that are coming in his millennial kingdom. When Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years, The saints are going to be given responsibility. Well, what about you? What responsibility will you be given? Well, it's based upon how you're living now. Are you an overcomer? And also in regard to your rewards. Scripture speaks so much about the rewards that we'll receive. And again, John tells us that we should make sure that we have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. We're told to lay up our treasure in heaven it's what Jesus said in Matthew. You know, the idea is that we can be stockpiling all these rewards and these blessings for future. But the, the problem is sometimes we forget the reality of that because we're kind of not there. And it's almost just, we can put it to one side, well, it, it doesn't matter that much. But it's going to. You know, again, standing before the throne of God, as other people are being rewarded with crowns and so on for their faithful service, And the line is getting shorter and shorter and you're getting closer and closer. That moment you look Jesus in the face and you see other people giving him their crowns that they've received as as rewards and they give them back to him as as a love gift to say thank you. Those crowns that he wears at the second coming. Those crowns are all acts of worship on our part to him for all that he's done. It's the only thing that, that I see in Scripture that we can actually give to Jesus. Of course, we're, we're to give him our hearts, our lives, and so on. But we're, we're given those crowns as rewards, and then we give them back. We lay those crowns at his feet. What a lovely thing to be able to, to give him something, to say thank you for what he's done for us. But what a horrible thing to be there, knowing that actually you kind of wasted your life, that you didn't really think about the reality of eternity. And so, we covered these things again last week. And you know, as a reminder, you know, what are the, the things that we're going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? Well, we said it's not salvation. Made that very, very clear. Salvation is the completed work of Jesus. We can't add to it. We can't earn it, and therefore we can't lose it also. Once we've received that gift of salvation, we're told in John uh, 10 that we're given eternal life. If it's eternal, you can't lose it. Otherwise, if you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal. No, the the things we'll we'll lose are those rewards at the judgment seat that we were just speaking about. You know, and again, we can't just pass it off and think about others and think that we'll be okay. It's very easy to look at others and other Christians and so on and say, well, they're not doing this, they're not doing that, they don't believe this, and, you know, God will judge them, but what about us? Okay, so getting on to the theme for this morning, this is really the, the point I want to get to. The, burdens are, the burden of Hebrews is not then rescuing sinners from hell, but it's the bringing of sons to glory. If you've got your Bibles, just turn to chapter 2. Scriptures on the screen, but it's just helpful to look at it in your own Bible. if you if you mark things in your Bible, this is where these things are going to be worth marking. We read this, picking up verse eight of Hebrews chapter two, it says that thou speaking of God and we're going when we get into the the the, the verse and we we'll start Lord willing next Sunday um, just really starting to go through it. It's just an incredible book. yeah, I think about um twenty times or so. Uh, in the first chapter, uh, we see God mentioned, referred to specifically. You know, and that's only in fourteen verses. You know, it's it, it all about God. And we're told God has put all things in subjection under His feet, speaking of Jesus. Yeah, this is this is the, the incredible thing that that God has chosen that everything is put under the authority of Jesus. He says. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. It's it's kind of just reiterating the same thing, but saying that there is nothing that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ. Everything is subject to him. But then the writer goes on and says this, but now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, God has effectively decreed that everything will be subject to Jesus but at the moment we're not quite there there's things that have got to be played out in the prophetic scenario the things that are yet to come You know, there's all sorts of things that are going to take place for now Satan is the god of this world he's the prince of the power of the air he he tried to offer Jesus in Luke chapter 4 you read the temptation of the wilderness he tried to offer Jesus the kingdoms of this earth the kingdoms of this world Well, that's exactly what Jesus will have. But Jesus knew that was a shortcut. That's what Satan so often does with temptation. He gives you a shortcut to something that God has for you that's legitimate, but he gives it to you in a way that's not. And of course, Jesus rejected Satan's offer. But ultimately, everything will be put under Jesus' control. All the nations will be under him. For now, they're not. They're not yet there. There's a time in the book of Revelation, we get to that moment where everything, the, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, we're told. And then verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Look at the, the statement there that Jesus was made lower than the angels. He, he, in a sense, the lowest in creation was man after the fall. Excluding, of course, animals, put animals and things alongside. But in terms of any eternal being, man was originally created above the angels, but lost that position, lost that authority. And so Jesus comes down to our level. And why does he do it? We're told, for the suffering of death. Jesus did it because he knew there was only one way. So we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Everything Jesus did was worthwhile. Because he knew the goal, he knew where he was going, he knew the objective, he knew his father's will. Crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. I mean, this is incredibly good news because death is a big problem. I'm not sure if you've noticed it. As I said before, people sometimes say, you know, well, if, if there's a God, if there's a God of love, why doesn't he end the problem of suffering? Well, the answer is because that wasn't our greatest need. And People say, well, why doesn't God end the problem of, of hunger? Well, because again, that wasn't our greatest need. Well, why doesn't God end the problem of sickness? Because that wasn't our greatest need. Our greatest need was the problem of death. And Jesus was the only one who could remedy that problem. So he tasted death for every man. But notice that he's crowned now with glory and honor. But he had to go through this for us. And then we're talking in verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. All right, just, just pause there for a second because this is another thing that will come out in the, the opening verses of the chapter. That everything has been put under Jesus' authority. He is in complete control. He holds all things together. Now, that, that goes on a, on a universal scale that comes down to an atomic level Every atom is literally held together by Jesus. But so are our lives. Our lives are also held together by him. If we are in him, our lives are held together. When we are outside Christ, when we're outside that walk and that relationship with him, things start to unravel. He holds all things together. It's a little bit like Israel. Israel. You know, we've looked before those incredible periods of history, those 490-year segments. And God almost stops the clock every time Israel were in a place of disobedience, when they're out of step. You know, that 15 years for Abraham with Ishmael, God doesn't count those years. 111 years during the book of Judges when they were under the subjection of their enemies, God doesn't count those years. You know, and there's times that we can put ourselves in that kind of position. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. He created everything, he holds all things together. And notice this, this is the key. In bringing many sons unto glory. That's the objective. That's what Christ came to do. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to communicate to us, that there is something so much greater than just the everyday life that we are so familiar with. That God has this incredible plan for us to bring sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. That's an incredible statement as well. That that we're brought into this relationship with Christ. That we're given this position. That we're we're counted as, as his brethren. Because it says, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. We are family. We've been invited in. We've been joined together. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. These are staggering things. Oswald Chambers made this comment. He said, thank God he does give us difficult things to do. His salvation is a glad thing, but is also a heroic, holy thing. It tests us for all we are worth. Jesus is bringing many sons unto glory, and God will not shield us from the requirements of the Son. God's grace turns out men and women with a strong family likeness to Jesus Christ. I love that statement. That's what God is doing. He's bringing sons unto glory. He's making us like Jesus. We go through all sorts of challenges, but it's for a purpose. See, why are we here? Why have we been left? You know, from the point of our salvation, we could have just been taken home. There's no need to wait for the rapture. We've been saved. We could go home. Why have we been left? Because we are now undergoing a training program. You know, and we've not just been left to get on with things. You know, This training program that we are going through is so that God can transform us. This is partly why I'm really excited about this book. Because I think there's so many things that are going to come out here that, that will be challenges to every one of us, I'm sure. They're going to prick our conscience at times. They're going to challenge us. We may go home and feel very uncomfortable after some Sunday mornings. And I hope and pray we all do. But at the same time, we go home encouraged, edified and blessed to think that God really wants to do this work in us. What does it mean? Well, this work of sanctification that we already mentioned this morning. What does it mean practically? Well, simply To put it one way, that everything we're going through is worthwhile. It's all part of this plan and this purpose that God has. You know, what we're going through right now is worthwhile. We may not feel like it, it may not seem like it. You know, over the last year we've had a number of people in the congregation that have gone through various trials and challenges. But you know, it's all worthwhile. God knows what he's doing and he's working to this end of bringing sons unto glory. And by the way, we're going to get to this in a minute. This is not a sexist thing. It doesn't exclude daughters. I'll talk about that in a second. But, but what the Lord is doing in our midst right now is worthwhile. Your, your day job or whatever you spend your time doing on a daily basis is all worthwhile because God has anointed and appointed and set up various situations for you. I my own personal testimony over the last, well, last year and a half, I suppose my work situation, the way that God has just gone before me and opened doors. you know, I've not had to push a single door. Every door is open and I've just simply walked through. And it's been truly incredible. There's been a number of steps of faith that I've had to take, but God has just done an incredible work. And I start my new job on the 20th. I just pray that God will open up opportunities to share the gospel with that new group of people I'm going to get to meet and We'll use that for his glory and his purpose. But everything that God has been doing, it'll be worthwhile. Even the little tests of faith I personally had to go through, and that Joy and I have gone through, the things we sat and discussed. and You know, before Christmas there was that real question of, okay, well, do I just quit work completely? Is the Lord saying we should go full time? Will we be prepared to do that? Will we be prepared to take that step of faith? And it really made us think, well, how much do we trust God? Are we prepared to trust him with everything? Or just the things that, you know, we're comfortable with? All the problems we'll deal with and we'll just trust God with the easy bits. No, No, no. Are we prepared to trust God with everything? You know, and your labor in the Lord is all worthwhile. You know, anything you do for the fellowship, However big, however little, it's all worthwhile. It's all part of God's plan and purpose. It's, you know, some of the smallest things that, that we do as individuals and as a congregation can be such a blessing to others. You know, often we don't get to see the fruit and the results of those things. But God really does use those things that we do. Every prayer you pray for one of your brothers and sisters here is of value. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is how we should be living. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's all worthwhile. It's all for a purpose. That purpose, again, is to bring sons unto glory. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet for the... And he put in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Again, God has put all things in subjection under Jesus. All things, as we said, that's the world's economies, politics, any theories, materialism, aspirations, society. Everything is under him. There is nothing that is not under Christ's authority, or ultimately will be so. So so there's, there's no direction that you can go to get out of that situation of understanding that Jesus really is the one who is in complete control of all things. As we said a moment ago, at the moment, not everything we see put under him because we're waiting for God to fulfill his word in time. And Corinthians tells us, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. There is nothing that you can invest your time in that will not ultimately be under the authority of Jesus Christ and not subject to his judgment, his scrutiny. For he must reign till He's put all enemies under his feet. In Psalm 2 we read the statement, Speaking again of the Trinity having this conversation, but God says, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Just simply underlining the authority that Jesus will have. Everything will be subject to him. Everything that we would ever aspire to or want to achieve or everything the world would want to have will all come under his authority. Nothing will escape. In Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. All dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. People say about the phrase all roads lead to God. Well, you know what innocence they do. And here we're told how it happens. All roads will lead to God, but some will lead there in judgment and some will lead there in worship. Again, the second part of verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, for that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. I want to read this quote to you from Oswald Chambers. He says, the only life of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament Sorry, uh, sorry. the only life of the Lord Jesus is in the New Testament, is what he's saying. There are phrases of the life of our Lord presented in the New Testament that no other life so-called deals with. If you start with the theory that Jesus Christ was a man who became God, you have to leave out any number of New Testament facts. If you say that Jesus Christ was God and his man had a seeming phase, you have to miss out other facts. The person of Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament is unique. God-man. In him we deal with God as man, the God-man, the representative of the whole human race in one person. Jesus Christ is not a being with two personalities. He is Son of God, the exact expression of Almighty God and Son of Man, the presentation of God's normal man. It's just that last line that really struck me. that, That When we look at Jesus, we get to see what God intended man to be. There's this this individual that can be in complete obedience, submitted to God's will, walking in blessing, walking in honor, walking in glory. You know, we have such a low expectation sometimes, but God wants to do something so great in each and every one of us. Hebrews 2.10 again, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, through sufferings. What he's saying is, it was fitting and necessary for God to go through this in order to bring many sons to glory, to allow Jesus to be our complete Savior. That's again the idea that's put forward here, so that we can be complete in Him. Verse 11 goes on and says, For both He that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus suffered to become complete, to carry out the goal. That's the idea. Uh, The word perfect uh, in the Greek we just looked at is this word teleo. It means to to carry to the goal. Okay, It's having an objective. It's going for that objective. And we likewise are to become complete. Jesus had this goal. He knew what he was going for. And we also need to have that same kind of mindset that there is a goal for us as Christians and Everything we're going through now is worthwhile because it's leading to that goal. It's the things that he's allowing in our life. James tells us that when we fall into various trials, the testing of our faith produces patience. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete. Again, that that idea, that plan that God has for us to be one with God. Not, not We don't become part of the Godhead. We're not saying there's abhorrent teachings that go down that line. But, you know, that we that we become one with him, we're joined together. We have that that uh we were talking last week um about this relationship that God has for us, is this, this being partakers of his nature. Again, Jesus suffered in order to be that which his father wanted him to be, which visits our Saviour. John four thirty four, Jesus said, My means is to do the will of him that sent me in, to finish his work. Again, all that we endure now is worthwhile. It leads to that goal, again, of us becoming brethren. Uh, we have to understand all the things that we go through, all the, these experiences, challenges, even right now where we are, is all leading us to this place. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is a theme that runs all through the New Testament. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We're invited to become part of the family of God. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called, whom he called them, he also justified, and whom he justified them, he also glorified. This whole process of bringing sons unto glory. You know we've not been brought out for God to leave us, just as with the children of Israel. In Joshua 1, it says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people unto the land, which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. You know, In one sense, it's a beautiful picture here because Moses represents the law. The law came to an end. And then under Joshua, Yeshua, we then move into the the promised land. We move into liberty, into freedom. Again, the goal wasn't just deliverance from Egypt. For for many Christians, salvation is kind of the it. It's far more than that. Of course, salvation is so important. We can't ever underplay or underestimate how important it is. But that's the beginning. Jesus didn't just die on the cross, he rose again. The goal isn't, again, just deliverance from Egypt, but it's to get to the promised land. It's to to get to that place of liberty, of freedom, of rest. And Redpath, in his great book, Victorious Christian Living, said this, in other words, the deliverance from Egypt was only in preparation for the enjoyment of Canaan. The Passover, the shedding of blood, the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's hosts all would have been useless unless they led to the place of rest in Canaan. Furthermore, it was only by possession of the land of Canaan that the promise of God to Abraham could be fulfilled. Now think of that in terms of our own lives. We've been delivered from Egypt in type. We've been saved. We've been saved from that place of bondage, from sin. We've been given that salvation, that deliverance. But the Lord is leading us forward. And it's not just about getting into the Canaan, but taking possession of all that God has for us. And what I'm trying to say to you, probably in a clumsy way in some ways this morning, but what I'm trying to communicate is that there is so much for us. There is so much that God has that he wants us to take possession of. And so often we leave it because we're so consumed with other things. In Hebrews 4, verse 1, we're going to get to read, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. That's what I'm saying. Just just as it was for the children of Israel, the writer of the Hebrews says here, look, there is so much more. But be careful because you could miss out on all that the Lord has for you. All that he wants your life to become as you become transformed. As you recognize your position as part of his family, as one of Christ's brethren. Again, verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Not, not labor in, in the sense of we have to work towards this in, in a, a, a sense of making resolutions or trying really hard. It's about yielding to Christ. As Oswald Chambers so frequently spoke of, it's about giving up the right to ourselves. But it's understanding that something has to be done. You can't just sit back and ignore it and expect this to happen. You need to be conscious of this. We we need to spend our time, and we'll talk more as we go through, but in, in God's Word. Do you know you can read the entire Bible in 72 hours? It's just a, a comfortable reading pace. If you were to read out loud, a comfortable pace, 72 hours is all it takes to read through the entirety of God's word. Books out about 12 and a half minutes a day. And you're through the Bible in a year. What else do you spend 12 and a half minutes on every day? How much time maybe do you spend reading things that are no intrinsic value in the light of eternity or watching things on telly or listening to things or Twelve and a half minutes out of 24 hours. That's all it would take. and you read through all the scripture in a year? Talked about Jesus holding all things together. If we are in Christ, he holds us together, holds our lives together. So many times people seem to struggle with discipline. But you know... (laughs) I know that I'm not going to get really fit unless I try and make that effort and go to a gym. I've got to do something. It's not going to happen by knowing the gym exists. It's not going to happen by being aware that there's the opportunity. I've got to do something. But spiritually, bodily exercise profits little, so that's, you know, but... But spiritually, we've got to do something. We've got to recognize that we've got to move from where we are, from our comfort zones. Again, Oswald Chambers says this, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says this, It requires the inspiration of God to go through drudgery with the light of God upon it. Some people do a certain thing, and the way in which they do it hallows that thing forever afterwards. You know, we're not necessarily talking about completely changing your lifestyle and your daily routines and everything else. We're just saying, get God at the center of everything. Some people do a certain thing and the way they do it hallows that thing forever after. It may be the most commonplace thing, but after we have seen them do it, it becomes different. What I believe also is trying to communicate here is that the very simplest things that we do in our life, we can do it as unto the Lord. You know, when you're washing up, rather than it being a burden or something that you have to do, or when you're doing whatever task or whatever, fill in the blank, you can think of whatever. Think of doing it as unto the Lord. You know, do, do your very best at whatever you do, because you know that it's an offering to him. It pleases him. things that Jesus did were of the most menial and commonplace order, this is an indication that it takes all God's power in me to do the most commonplace things in his way. Can I use a towel as he did? Towels and dishes and sandals, all the ordinary sordid things of our lives reveal more quickly than anything what we are made of. It takes God Almighty incarnate in us to do the meanest duty as it ought to be done. It's impossible he goes on to say, to be well physically and to be dejected. Dejection is a sign of sickness. And the same thing is true spiritually. Dejection spiritually is wrong. And we are always to blame for it. We look for visions from heaven, for earthquakes and thunders and God's power. The fact that we are dejected proves that we do. And we never dream that all the time God is in the commonplace things and people around us. If we will only do the duty that lies nearest, we shall see him. One of the most amazing revelations of God comes when we learn that it is in the commonplace things that the deity of Jesus Christ is realized. Start to realize that Jesus really is interested in every single part of our lives. Just one little final thing. In First Kings, I'm not going to read all the text, I'll let you read it uh, on your own, but it speaks about this uh House that Solomon built verse two speaks of the, the time of or this passage from First King six uh speaks about them coming out of Egypt and then they get to this certain point eventually the reign of Solomon, they decide to build the house of the Lord and so on, and they, they work out the measurements. the Lord says what the size of the, the measurements are going to be, uh, the porch and so on, the windows and every single part of this house, every little part of the house matters. it goes on, I'll let you read the scriptures in your own time. And verse 7 simply says this, And the house, when it was in the building, was built of stone, now notice this, made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in the building. So everything was, was, all the stones were shaped in the quarry first, before they were brought to the temple and put into the temple itself. So on the temple mount, as the temple was being set up, there was no tools used, it was just simply the stones put in place. All the work was already done. I say that because of this. It's a great quote by Spurgeon. He says, based on Zechariah 6.13, He shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. He says this, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple and he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection, his omnipotent grace and his infallible truthfulness. But as it was in Solomon's temple, so in this, the materials need making ready. There are the cedars of Lebanon, but they are not framed for the building. They are not cut down and shaped and made into these planks of cedar, whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the Lord's house in paradise. There are also the rough stones still in the quarry. They must be hewn thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Let me just interject here. When we go through troubles, unless we recognize and see what God is doing, they can lose their value. But when we see what God is doing, when we understand that he is using these things, our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven, apart from the hand of Jesus, who fashioneth our hearts aright. As in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house because all was brought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy. So it is with the temple which Jesus builds. The making ready is all done on earth. And we're going through this process. The work that the Lord is doing in us right now is getting us ready for things that we have no concept of in the light of eternity. But it's all worthwhile. Peter tells us that we're all living stones, that we're, we're growing up into this, this temple. He says, you as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. One last quote from Oswald Chambers. He simply says this, we are in the quarry now and God is hewing us out. God's spirit gathers and marks the stones. And then they have to be blasted out of their holdings by the dynamite of the Holy Ghost to be chiseled and shaped and then lifted into the heavenly places. God grant that many may go through the quarrying and the chiseling and the placing. Think of the scrutiny of Jesus Christ that each one of us has to face. Think of his eyes fasting on us and pointing us out before God as he says, Father, that is my work. That is the meaning of Gethsemane. This is the meaning of Calvary. I did all that man's work in him and all that woman's work in her. Now you can use them. Interestingly, as I said, when we get there, when we get to heaven, this is what we're going to see. Just as it was in Solomon's temple, no stone was seen these stones that have been hewn out and been brought to the temple site and been laid in place. They weren't seen. Why? Because they were all overlaid with pure gold. So you and I, covered in Christ, clothed in Jesus Christ. All of the self life gone. All of us gone. Bringing sons and daughters unto glory. But you know that sons idea again is just from what John tells us. First John. We're told that the manner of love, the whole what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Not sons or daughters of God, but sons of God. Why? Because whether you are male or female, you are given the place of the firstborn. The son was the one, typically in the Jewish culture, who would inherit. And the firstborn son, specifically. I mean, many examples of that in scripture, of course. So whether you are male or female, you want to be classed as a son of God because it's saying that you are given the highest place of honor, that position of the firstborn. And it says, beloved, now we are the sons of God. Male or female, you are placed in that position of the firstborn. That's why he's bringing sons unto glory. He highly esteems you. You are placed in the most important place. verse just goes on and says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And to conclude, Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident in this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, church, this morning, the Lord wants to do so much in us and with us and through us. But Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He's kind of allowing us to be the instigator, to say, yes, Lord, I want you to do this work in me. Jesus will never force his way. Yet we're saved. Yes, we have eternity ahead of us. But there is so much. There's so much territory in Canaan to be taken. So much possession to be had. God has so much for each one of us. And we each get to choose whether we're going to step out in faith and take that which he has for us. Let's bow our hearts. Father, Lord, just speak to us through these things. Lord, I pray that my words, clumsy as they may be, and my thoughts and ramblings at times, Lord, I just pray you speak to each one of us and, and just remind us to show us, Lord, what you have for us and what you want to do in us and with us and through us. Lord, the incredible privilege we have, of being elevated from anything this world would know, to be considered joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the one under whom all things will be placed, that we will be considered brethren. And Lord, transform us by the renewing of our minds. Lord, this work that you have started in us, continue in us, we pray. And as we journey through this book, oh, Father, please transform us. Give us a love for Jesus Christ, greater than we have ever known. Father, we pray that we truly would lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares. Even the little things, the small things, may it all be abhorrent to us as it is to you. And may we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask in his precious name. Amen.